Hello and welcome back to the Master Engineer Podcast. I am, as always, your host, Sotak Andrei, and you're listening to episode 30, so we changed another prefix, and that's really cool. First of all, I am the first to admit and recognize that my <laughs> what I called my New Year's resolution of putting out an episode a week has sort of went down the drain it's unfortunate but like i said i think a couple of times now i do this alone and this is sort of just a side kick of mine unfortunately so i cannot sacrifice things that actually grant me my income and my living to be able to do this so uh, essentially i try to carve out time for these and i do my best to put out an episode a week but uh, every now and again life is going to happen and these will come out infrequently so with that out of the way let's get into the intro for this week's episode which is going to be uh, with the one and only Lyle McDonald who I'm sure you're all familiar with uh, Lyle is one of those people who it's really hard to remain neutral about uh, you either love him or hate him I don't particularly like the whole camp mentality, but it is what it is. That's just the reality of it. Um, I sort of alternate between moments. I love talking to him in person. I sometimes hate talking, in quotation marks, with him on Facebook because he can be a bit of an ass. But that doesn't change the fact that he is a fountain of wisdom. And uh, like I said, in one-to-one conversations he's just amazing and this will be the first part of a long conversation that i had with him which in total is going to sum up three parts so in this episode we sort of went into his updated thoughts around refeeds and diet breaks we touched on each of the proposed refeeding strategies that he outlined like uh, way back in 2004 in the original guide to flexible dieting and um, we also touched on full diet breaks maintenance phases and everything in between so i hope you enjoy it and without further ado here's episode 30 of the master engineer podcast with lyle mcdonald Lyle McDonald, welcome back to the Master Engineer Podcast once again. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. So last time we spoke, uh, we kind of went over uh, diet fundamentals. We talked about calories mm-hmm. and macronutrient setups and that kind of stuff. So I kind of want to uh, continue that um, train of thought and uh, get into the energy out component of it as well. But first I want to um, kind of... Um, touch on the subject of refeeds and diet breaks because i would be curious if um how your thoughts have evolved over the years okay because you know um like years ago the bodybuilding uh, typical bodybuilding prep was whatever 16 weeks 12 weeks of hard dieting and you yeah usually that was when they started blasting their drugs right uh, and then and the naturals kind of took that uh, approach and wasn't going too well and basically yeah. just ended up not getting in sufficient shape. Yep. And then somehow it uh, transitioned into longer and uh, longer and longer reps. And I think it uh, got into another extreme like Jeff Alberts, uh, his 52-week prep and oh God, stuff like that. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he basically burned himself out mentally one year, but it's n- neither here or there. Um, so there are those approaches. Now it seems to be somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Uh, however, there are still um, people like, for example, Jared Feather, even when he did his natural pro um, debut, um, when he wasn't, when his pro card, whatever, he still, I think, only properly prepped for like 16 weeks. Okay. And um, this ties me into the topic of uh, diet breaks and refeeds because um, Mike Israel, for example, I think he prefers just you know, straight, get into the mindset, Yes. diet hard for 12 to 16 weeks, whatever. Um, don't interrupt it with um, periodic refeeds and diet breaks because that sort of, you know, gets you off the track. But then there are other people who um, program in either once a day, uh, once a week, um, mm-hmm. high carb refeed days or um, every however many, six to eight weeks uh, at 10 to 14 day um, diet break which I think you popularized like way back in the 
Gaitev Taxi World Day, I think, was it? Yes, it was 2004. 2004, and I want everybody listening like, to remember this. I, I, and I didn't invent the idea. Like, do not get me wrong. I was just basing it on what I saw in the research. And other people, I mean, Dan Duchesne, long before me, said he would break dieting periods with the two-week maintenance calories to try it. Like, so this wasn't new. I think I very much formalized it and introduced it. And of course, at the time, everyone said, this can't work. There's no way. How can you, how can, how can, everybody knew that you had to diet as hard as you could for as long as you could to get into shape. And of course, now in 2019, or starting even a few years ago, like you can't, you know, everybody talks about flexible dieting. There are flexible dieting websites and news groups. And, and some of them even, you know, give me credit, which is, I mean, I've been plagiarized. But like, yeah, I, I formalized a lot of this stuff 15 years ago. And, you know, at the time I wrote about kind of three strategies and I'll talk about those real briefly. And then, of course, there's there's the, the fourth one that I had nothing to do with. It's more recent. So what I originally wrote about was a the free meal, which was just a non diet meal. Right. It was totally psychological, just like you're dieting for long periods of time. It gets to be a grind. You have cravings. Just get to eat a non diet meal and then go back to dieting. Um, there was the refeed, which is at the time I was probably basing it more on carb loading type literature. And certainly this has made kind of resurgent. It's really more of a maintenance or slightly above maintenance day based around carbs. The idea was, you know, refill muscle glycogen. Obviously most people crave carbs on a diet. You can, you can fulfill some of those cravings. A lot of it was also based around the leptin data, right? This was all coming out you know, really building the late 90s to early 2000s. And that really explained a big part of like dieting adaptations and metabolic adaptations. And that was really kind of like, it all just kind of fell into place. The idea was to try to raise leptin to help, you know, offset or reverse some of these adaptations. And I, I described anywhere at that time between a five hour refeed to a one day to a two day. And that's probably where most of, a lot of my, my ideas have changed. Actually, let's scrap that. In 15 years, a lot of my ideas about all of this have changed, and we'll touch on that. Finally, was the full diet break, and at the time, I described that as a 14-day, essentially at maintenance calories. Again, similar thing. Give the body a break. Give your mind a break. If you're heavy contest prep, maybe allows you to train a little more, rebuild if you've lost any loss, any, sorry, if you've lost any muscle. A lot of it was to kind of reset metabolic rate, and this was based on an odd little study by Wing, where they were actually trying to see what happens when people quit their diet, right? Most people stop dieting, they fall off the wagon, they gain a bunch of weight, they can't get back on track. But they told these subjects, we're going to diet you from, I think it's either two or six weeks, it's been a while, then we want you to take a two-week break, and then we're going to see what happens. What happened was nobody gained weight, nobody had a problem getting back on the diet. Like, they basically completely failed to study what they wanted to study, but to me it was a much bigger in more interesting finding, because the big difference was when most people fall off a diet, it's out of their control. I had a craving, I started eating, I couldn't stop, right? The diet is controlling you. And as we know from research, when a guy in a lab coat tells you to do something, you want to make him happy, essentially. That's kind of a, a you know, you want to basically, you've entered this study. And I think by telling them to do it, they thought of it, oh, this is part of my diet. They didn't see it as a loss of control. And, and I discussed this in, in, in the Flexible Dieting book. I discussed it in the women's book, too, that I think it puts the dieter in control of the diet. I am choosing to do this rather than this is happening because I'm weak-willed. And I could get into a whole tangent about the addiction literature, and they talk about what happens when drug addicts or alcoholics, you know, have an abstinence violation. And if they learn from it, it's one thing, and if they beat themselves up over it, it tends to be. And I, I saw some similarities there. So anyway, that was the basic three flexible dieting concepts. And I should also note, research doesn't talk about this in the context of flexible dieting. That's not what they're, they're talking about fle flexible attitudes and rigid attitudes. It's a mindset more than a specific strategy. Flex, rigid eaters or rigid attitudes are the people that see there are good foods and bad foods, black and white on or off and flexibility is more about okay there are, you know food is just food if i have a break on one day it's no big deal i can adjust it the next day or not and move on and it and rigid dieting habits 
at least in the general public, have been shown to have much more negative outcomes. Uh, you tend to be heavier, have more binge eating, more cravings. It can even put people into an eating disorder. Now, the general public and physique are not the same thing. And realize researchers, by and large, don't care about lean athletes. Very little, you know. So this was all kind of a, an inference. And, but there were good psychological, there were good physiological reasons. Oh, and of course, the more recent strategy is if it fits your macros, which is just, which again, I was talking about 15, 20 years ago. I said, look, you could get ripped on protein powder and table sugar as long as your cow, like I'm not saying do it. I'm not saying it's sustainable. I'm not saying you could adhere to it. I go, but it's calories. Of course, no, no, no insulin, sugar, clean eating, blah, 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 blah. And now again, 15 years later, I'm totally vindicated. Everyone's like, oh, if it fits your calories within a certain limit, it's all fine because the insulin thing is nonsense and it's pretty much calories and protein. And again, I'm not telling people to eat 100, you know, we've got the Pop-Tart idiots on YouTube. I'm not saying do that, right? If it fits your macros has been criticized on such dumb grounds of, well, what you're saying is it's okay to eat Pop-Tarts every day. Well, premise, but if you look at what those people are doing, they're having maybe one treat a few times a week. Like the people who are doing clean eating and binging every Sunday are eating far more junk food than if it fits your macros people. But they see it as, well, I'm perfect for six days and I get to eat myself sick for one, so I'm still morally superior. So those are like the four basic strategies. And when I wrote my, my book in 2004, I was very, well, I was young. I was very enthusiastic about all of it, especially the leptin stuff. This was, this was it, right? Everyone should do it from day one. And I would probably say that's where a lot of my attitudes have changed. And this leads way back around to something you brought up. One, not everybody does well with this stuff, right? For reasons, and it's usually... It's, I mean, separating psychological and physiological reasons is impossible, but I think it is for psychological reasons. And and I forget who you said prefers to do just a shorter, harder uh, diet. I didn't. I don't pay attention to names. Uh, not. I don't. Care. I'm usually don't, Mike, for example. Yeah, I don't care about it. I seriously, I don't. I don't follow sports. I find them boring as all sin. I care about the problems. But for some people, when they diet, there's a mental switch that happens. They are on their diet. And for a physique athlete, right, they're, they're facing down a lot, right? They're facing down starving their body into submission over time. And if using these flexible dieting strategies causes that switch to come un, unflipped, it may be hard. Some people just find it difficult to get back in that mode. And they are they may be better off avoiding these strategies. Now, we might ask within the physique con. Okay, what's happening afterwards, right? That was one of the things that was always missed in the clean eating and the, well, they look fantastic on stage, so it must work. Well, true, but sports, sports selects for the winners. First, let's address the 85% who didn't make it because they couldn't stop binging when they were eating that way because they were clean eaters. Let's talk about what happens after the show, which nobody wants to talk about. Now, admittedly, physique dieters, they have to regain the body fat. Like, that's not a choice. That's another, people see these pictures of contests. Oh, they must look great year-round. Oh, no, 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 no. You have no idea. You have no idea what a lot of these, especially the drug-using bodybuilders, you have no idea what they look like in the off-season, and you would be depressed if you saw it. But you see these folks and that, that come out of contest prep and balloon and often lose because they have been 16 weeks of that, cracks them. And when they caught, so like, okay, what's, what's more important? Big picture. Yes, physique athletes have, but if we're talking about the general public, what's more important? Big picture. The short-term gains you might make by being that extreme or the long-term sustainability. So, so there was one thing, is I think there's that psychological switch that happens. And that's true for all dieters. Not just physique, but for there's also the general public dieter. And here's probably where I've changed a lot of my thinking. Someone starting out on a diet, right? Your typical overweight individual. They're not an athlete. They're not a whatever. They just want to lose weight. They have however many years of, you know, relatively poor eating habits. We know that there are potentially permanent changes in their reward system, 
right? And that gets super complicated. It looks like they're hypersensitive early on and that causes them to enjoy junk food or palatable foods more. And then as they eat more of them, the system becomes insensitive and now they need more. It's, it's very much like the drug addiction model and I don't want to get into that, whether or not that's a valid model. There are elements of it I think are true. So suddenly you take someone that has those issues and may very well have some, you know, just food issues. And within the first couple of weeks, you're telling them, oh, I want you to break your diet. I want you to have a free meal. It's okay to have a cookie. And I think in many cases, it does, suddenly you're triggering this reward system. You're triggering these, these, this taste, these preferences. They may not be in a position to do that right? The people that usually can are the ones that have really good food control, right? All the really rabid, if it fits your macros people, and they're as ideologically annoying as the rigid, as the clean eaters, as far as I'm concerned. Everyone should eat flexibly or you're have an eating disorder. Well, no. And the problem is y'all did it for 10 years. The, you know what every calorie going into your mouth is. I do. When I go to the buffet, I know how much I'm eating. I don't care, but I know exactly what I'm eating. The general public dieter doesn't have that background, and I think that's super forgotten. So, and I wrote about this in the women's book, like, look, these strategies are useful, they're important long-term, but if you try them too early, in many cases, they backfire. And if they do, don't use them. They're not right for you now, right? Now, in 12 weeks, taste buds take about six weeks to turn over and change. So, you you know, you lose that taste for salt and sugar and fat. The reward system might readapt. I haven't looked into it in detail. But maybe for that general public dieter, they be are better off dieting relatively more. Like, you take the trigger foods out. You know, there was that one really cool study where they did they put them on a low-carb diet. And then one group stayed low-carb long-term, and the other brought their carbs up to, what did they call it, a healthy carbohydrate level? It was really weird terminology. The Gardner study. Uh, yeah, I, again, I, I've gotten to the point, I can't remember any of this. I'm getting old in my memory. I used to remember mm -hmm. titles and authors, and I can't do it anymore. And right, and they found that long-term, the group, and, and they ended up at what, 120, 130 grams of carbs? Like, it wasn't a lot. It wasn't the probably 300 they were eating before, but that was sustainable long-term. Right? So there's nothing that says you can't start with a more extreme diet and move to something more moderate as habits develop. And, and I think flexible eating strategies fall under that, right? And, and even, well, getting off topic again, like the intermittent caloric restriction stuff I find very fascinating because in a, in a sense, isn't it that really what it's doing, right? We're dieting hard for a couple, three days, and then we're having a, a maintenance day. But the difference is how it's being described Priest. you're not telling the dieter i want you to deliberately overeat carbs right i don't want i don't and i still the cheat day terminology must go away because that is just, <laughs> i agree that is simply promoting the idea that the, no you cheat on your taxes you cheat at school you cheat on your wife there is no use of the word cheating that is positive this is not exactly. back in the day bill phillips wrote body for life which is a really good book and he said for 24 hours have a cheat day people went off the rails because as soon as you tell them I want you to cheat, the goal does not become to eat at maintenance. It becomes to put as much garbage down your pie hole. There, there were stories. I heard this. A guy woke up at 12.01 a.m. on his cheat day and ate till 11.59 p.m. the next night because that's a day. Right? <laughs> this is what happened. So in the ICR literature, they don't tell them I want you to deliberately overeat and deliberately break your diet. They said just eat normally. And I think that is a fundamentally psychologically different approach to it. That in that situation, because it does work, what they find is that people on the maintenance days eat anywhere from 5 or 10% below maintenance to 5 or 10% above. They're not rolling off the rails. They're not because they're not mentally approaching it from I must eat every carbohydrate in sight. So I think, I think that may be a better approach. And it is. It's still promoting relatively flexible attitudes. Yeah, anybody can diet hard for a few days. Then just eat normally. And even there... I mean, the studies, it's its funny the way they describe it. There was a recent one. It was like a 2-5 pattern, two hard diet days, five at maintenance versus a straight diet. And, and both groups lost the same amount of weight and fat. Well, that doesn't surprise me, right? It's not magic anymore. Intermittent fasting is magic. And they concluded ICR has no advantage. Well, but the ICR group only had to diet two days out of the week. I see that as a big advantage over having to be moderately 
But again, individual differences. Right, but I think these were mostly on um, <clears throat> overweight population. Oh, no doubt. No, 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 absolutely no doubt. Like, like again, keep this in context. And so, you know, and, and a whole separate podcast we could do is like dieting as a learning experience. People think, oh, yeah. I must diet this way, I must diet that way. No, people have dieted with a million different approaches and they all work for some people and don't work for others. You have to figure out which yeah. approach strategy and yes if flexible if having a free meal or a refeed switches that flip from on diet to off then it's not for you right even even with all the metabolic stuff even with the diet break even with with the higher carb the refeed or the maintenance days right people got into shape for decades without this and i hope people have never heard me say they are by no means required because if they were nobody would ever get into shape without them Right. They are not required. I think in many cases they are beneficial. They may be more optimal when they work. However, they're so clearly if a if a dieter has found that that's not right for them, that then they shouldn't do it. And but that's an individual thing. I do all you know what dieters did and can still and still have to do. Well, metabolic rate is going to slow. Your smaller adaptive thermogenesis, we'll talk about that when we get the energy out. And you just keep adjusting your diet. Bodybuilders did this for years. Oh, another week, cut another 100 calories, add 20 more minutes of cardio. They, they, I years ago heard about uh, physique bodybuilders with experience, and they're like, oh, I just know that every couple of weeks I need to take 10% out of my daily. Like they don't even count numbers, but that's after a decade, right? They, they know exactly what they're, and they eat the same stuff every day, and you don't have to to use those strategies. I think they can be helpful. I think for women, just because of menstrual cycle disturbances, proportionally more important when they're leaner. And I'll, pin, I'll, I'll push my women's book. I discuss this in great detail. But again, if it's kicking a woman off her diet, she's losing food control, that's a far worse outcome if you're on a time schedule than any metabolic benefit. So, so yeah, I think we're, we're basically, they can be helpful. They can be beneficial. Under some conditions, they can be brutally detrimental. And in those situations, well, don't use them. Oh, my goodness. You talked about dieting as a learning experience. I went through everything, like from 2011. Um, in 2013, I did the whole uh, Sunday refeed, cheat meal, cheat day. Uh, I remember waking up on Sundays and mom used to work in this uh, supermarket and they had these baked stuff that would expire and they just sell it as bulk, bulk basically and had this huge bag and I would just look forward to Sunday when I would just eat everything because it's a cheat day and it boosts your metabolism. Oh, been, been there, done uh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah we all have. I, <laughs> then I transitioned into calorie counting and IFYM and posting ice cream Instagram. And now, honestly, like I'm even trying to sell my protein cookies because they are like 300 calories and 40 grams of protein, but they are still delicious as hell. And sure, I can still eat like three of these oh, yeah. in five minutes, and that's a thousand calories. I exactly. Don't eat, so. Yep. Me too. I, I hear you. Yeah. And and I think a lot people that have found, you know, their own. The problem is that people then do that and decide that oh well, this is what works for me. This is the way to diet. And it's like no. And that causes a lot of problems because as soon as someone hears this is the way to diet and it does not work for them as an individual, they feel like a failure. No, the diet was not right for you or maybe wasn't right for you now or whatever it is, right? We know that overweight individuals, typically insulin resistant, tend to eat a lot of excess carbs. Many don't do moderation. Well, I didn't used to. Probably don't now, but there was a brief period in my, my 20s and 30s, right? Maybe you do have to cut all the trigger foods out of their diet for a while. Taste buds change, whatever. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. there's also this misguided idea. Years ago, I read a paper that even said, talked about this. It says there's no rule. There's not even any reason why the diet you use to lose weight has to be the diet that you use to maintain weight. Now, I think we both agree that there are components that must be present. Like, I'm not protein. saying, I'm not, yeah, right. You need to get enough, like, and that's, look at my rapid fat loss. You got to have enough protein, fish oils, vegetables. Everything else is up context dependent, individual dependent, right? Yeah, I'm not saying, you know, broth fast. I'm not saying do one of these stupid two-week juice diets and then think you can go, like, there should be components of it, but it doesn't have to be, like, just because you lost weight on keto or whatever, 
doesn't mean you have to stay there forever. And again, we go back to that that healthy carb study that I've already forgotten the name of again. Um, so, so that's I think that's where my global attitudes about a lot of that stuff have changed in terms of going from enthusiastically thinking it's for every single human being ever in the history of ever who's dieting or eating to yeah maybe not so much maybe it it, it yeah th there are other things I want to at least briefly address um, especially in the era of if it fits your macros I do think the free meal is probably the most disposable of anything I propose, right? It has no physiological benefits, although I still hilariously see people say, oh yeah, I have, I have one high calorie meal to reset my metabolism. <laughs> oh, I have such bad news for you. I have such, such bad news for you. It doesn't do anything physiologically. It's purely psychological to let you have some, some of those, the stuff you can't eat. It's probably the most disposable. If you're doing it, if it fits your macros, you can kind of do that to a limited degree anyway. You know, I never really set a calorie limit on the free meal beyond don't go to a buffet, maybe time limit it. Don't think that going to the restaurant and stopping for cookies on the way home is a meal. Like, don't, don't game it. Don't cheat. Don't pretend you know what you're doing. Like, I, I you know, typically eating it at dinner, go to a restaurant so you won't order three pieces of cake because you feel guilty. Like, I put in some limiters, but people can still, it can still be a problem. Moving to refeeds or days at maintenance, right? Again, the early leptin data, we know that you can raise leptin with five hours of high carbohydrate eating. That's not debatable. What I no longer think is the case, I don't think it has any real effect metabolically. Right, I don't think it really does anything. Yeah, leptin goes up, but is that signal sufficient to change anything that's going on? And I don't think, not that that makes it useless, glycogen resynthesis, recovery, you know, calorie, calorie and carb cycling. Like, if you think of it, you know, if you look at some of the every other day intermittent fasting approaches or calorie cycling, like, that's kind of what you're doing, right? Like you're alternating diet and maintenance days and you're clustering your calories around training. There's a lot of logic to that. If I write anything quickly recently, I'm actually thinking about putting together something on like ICR for athletes. I'm really looking forward to that study that they just announced where they're going to look at that, looking at, at intermittent caloric restriction for athletes rather than overweight individuals. Forget who's doing it. I think Trexler is involved. Menno may be involved. I think... Eric does it in Australia and like RP is funding some of it. I yeah, think, I think, I yes. I, I saw the announcement for it. It was one of those papers that I detest because I come across this cool title. I'm like, I can't wait to read this. Oh, wait, this is a paper announcing the paper that they're going to do and publish as a paper. <laughs> Damn it, don't do it. Like, I don't need this. I don't need researchception. I don't need to have to worry about, you know, this is the study design for the ex explanation we're going to do of the research study that we're eventually, like, don't, don't tease me. But I'm really excited about seeing what, what comes out of that. So the five-hour refeed has benefits, but I don't think metabolic benefits are one of them. So the one-day refeed, right, where you're eating at maintenance or slightly above, yes and no, right? I'm no longer convinced that one day per week of that has a benefit in terms of preventing metabolic adaptation, in terms of preventing metabolic, that all that stuff that goes on with adaptive thermogenesis. Now, the debate, and this was something Eric and I talked about several years ago, okay, if you die six days and have one maintenance day, I don't think that will have any real effect. Maybe super early in the diet, maybe not. Eh, not a lot of data. Well, there is, and I'll come back to that. What if you do a maintenance day twice a week, but they're every three days, right? So you diet a couple of days and you have a maintenance day, then you diet a couple more days and you have a maintenance day, right? Maybe, and I, I'm basing that very, on very indirect data, right? We know that when you start a diet, it's about three or four days before much happens, right? Four days of fasting actually raises metabolic rate slightly. So all you skip breakfast, metabolic slows down, people need to get, get caught up, right? Four days of not eating at all will raise metabolism because the human body doesn't adapt that quickly. Appetite typically doesn't go up for three or four days, which is all why all these dumb studies, well, we exercised them for one day and hunger didn't go up. Exercise, oh, come on. Just, oh, come on. I, th this stuff, we know better. You shouldn't even be doing these studies anymore because we know that a couple days of dieting don't have that real. Uh, and ICR studies show it completely. You can do 25% maintenance for three days and you tell people to eat normally, 
like I said, anywhere bet between about 10% below and 10% above maintenance. Hunger doesn't increase that quickly. And, and as I thought about that, well, clearly overeating more doesn't reverse that that quickly, right? If dieting for three days doesn't slow metabolism, eating normally for one day probably isn't going to increase it. And that's kind of what my logic was. But if you have a maintenance day every two or three days, so leptin comes back up to normal, does that limit or prevent the adaptation? Eric's experience is that anecdotally it seems to, but no, there's not any data, so take that for what it's worth. He also found that menstrual cycle irregularities, which is a separate thing, seem to happen more slowly in his female dieters, and that's a really important thing. So the one day by itself probably doesn't do much, but maybe multiple of those. Like again, you look at some of those every other day dieting stuff. And remember, I was talking about that about 15 years ago too. So don't think any of this is new, right? Where you train three days a week and you eat normally on Monday, Wednesday, Friday around training and you diet on the other three or four days. You know, so you get a net deficit, but you're supporting training and yada, yada. Like you are raising leptin to normal every other day. And I swear to God, I had a paper years ago that, that even looked at that and I've never been able to find it again. So I might have dreamt it, that it, it looked and it showed that leptin just kept coming back up to normal, even like, and it was much more gradual fall compared to straight dieting, but I've never been able to find it again. So take that for granted. And I might have just dreamt it. Wouldn't be the first time. Anyway, and then two days, I think certainly does have an effect. At that point, you know, I mean, three days would probably be better and four days would be better too, but at that point you're not dieting, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could conceivably go four on four off if we had an eight day week if you look at my ultimate diet too it's about three and a half days of hard dieting and about kind of three and a half days of maintenance it's about as close as you're going to get with a seven day week but you also have an enormous calorie day on the, the the carb load day it's like double maintenance but whatever so there are two studies actually in women that have looked at this and for women the issue is not metabolic and not metabolic rate so much as they want they're looking at menstrual cycle disruption because that occurs when women are chronically in what's called low energy availability and energy availability is a difference between calorie intake and exercise energy expenditure just think of it as the calories that are left to the body to run all the important stuff like keeping your heart beating and your organs working and when when that's too low for too long women's bodies go okay shut down the unimportant stuff immune system uh, reproductive function. And I mean, it happens in men too, right? I joked for years, guys diet hard to get to 8% to look hot for women and they can't function sexually. Oh, the irony of the world, right? <laughs> you, you look amazing and you, you can't get an erection because your testosterone is castrate. So like it happens in men too, but there are differences. Men's systems are a little bit more robust and it doesn't, but so they're looking at it for this, right? And it's mainly the main researchers and Luke's so what she has typically done is like five days of low energy availability, looking at luteinizing hormone and FSH and the hormones that, that regulate and, and what she sees very reliably. Five days of low energy availability, this stuff crashes you. Thyroid goes down in five days, cortisol goes up, IGF-1 goes down, LH pulsatility changes. Like you don't see menstrual cycle dysfunction, but you see the hormonal changes that will cause it. So she did a zillion studies on this, and then she said, okay, in, in animals, if you overfeed them for one day, all this reverses. Now, animal studies are problematic because mice and rats adapt about, like, one meal for a mouse is like three days for a human. I know it doesn't scale linearly, but mice and rats have, like, their, their lifespan is three to seven times shorter than humans. Everything happens way fast, and that's where all that metabolic slowdown garbage came from. I mean, hummingbirds, like, if they miss a meal, they die, right? Like, this is, like, when you have animals that have that short, like, that's, humans are not like that. Like, a, a day in the life of a rat is like a week in the life of a human. And so, but she studied this. So she had him do five days of low energy availability, just like always. And then she just, I forget the numbers. It was like 50 calories per kg or 60 or something. Like it was some, it was like 6,000 calories or something just, just dumb over a 24 hour span, like double or triple maintenance or something like that. And the punchline was that nothing changed. Right, one day of just staggering refeeding did nothing hormonally. 
conclusion, one day of even staggering refeeding doesn't, doesn't change it. But then this other study didn't look at it directly. And what they did, they did three days of complete fasting and found the same hormonal changes, right? Thyroid tanks, cortisol goes up, LHF, blah, 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 blah. And, and I mathed it out, and actually the net calorie deficit for the fasting study versus the other one was about the same, rough estimate. And I, and I think that was kind of interesting. But then just for giggles, they had them eat at maintenance for two days and remeasured everything. And voila, they went back to normal. It's only two papers. I want to see more. However, what this kind of, and I talked about this in the women's book in detail, is like that that one day out of six doesn't, isn't sufficient no matter how much you eat. But two days out of five was. And that's kind of where I came. And again, how early is, how, what's your body fat percentage? What is your deficit? How early in the diet are you? Like you might, one day might be more than sufficient when you're starting a contest diet. And when a woman is at 12%, she may need three days a week. She may have to diet hard for four days and then have three days of maintenance. So we're looking, you know, and, and in my books, it's got way too complicated. I was like, if you're this body fat with this deficit and this, then you should refeed either one of these two, right? So it can be anywhere from, and if you're overweight, you don't need a refeed for, you know, two or three weeks because leptin's so high. Sherby Stearns, if you know him. Mm-hmm. He, he, he <laughs> I was laughing. He has some great posts on Instagram. And at what one point he was like, you know, if you're just starting a diet, like after whatever, 50, 40 years, 30 years of just chaotic dieting, you don't need to cheat me. Like your whole life has been a cheat up until this point. Like <laughs> you just need some consistency and discipline. We kind of mentioned that earlier. It's like, and he's exactly right, is you're having to retrain two decades of bad food habits and causing people and telling people to break their diet deliberately may not, again, 12 weeks, 24 weeks from now, after you've lost some weight and changed some stuff, then you can try it again. So I, I, I don't, like, he puts it a little bit differently than I do, but whatever, it's, we're saying the exact same thing, and I don't disagree yeah, with him. Yeah, he's funny. Um, so, that, so that's kind of like where we're a lot of, oh, then the full diet break. And, and honestly, you know, if you want to look at it from a metabolic standpoint or whatever, in a, in, to a great degree, the full diet break kind of obviate, obviates the need for any of this, right? Like it's it's great, and there's also limited research. Um, oh my God, Era Alex Ritson did a paper. Yeah. I actually helped him with some of the the design where he looked at like one day refeeds. I don't think it ever got published or hasn't been published yet on some metabolic effects during dieting. And one day seemed to do something, right? But there's even that question. All right, so say we do bump thyroid up for a day. What happens next? Does it does it matter? Does it go? Does it crater right back down after another day of dieting? Like I, I I'm just no longer convinced. You know, I, it's clearly doing something. Again, Eric found that when his when his female dieters are doing either one day at maintenance, a couple times a week, or doing three towards the end, like they do eventually have menstrual cycle and they may lose their menstrual function, but it happens a lot later, right? It's happening a month out from the show instead of five months out for the show. And like, that's, that's a profound difference for women's overall health and physiology. So like I still, but again, like I said, like we talked about, if it's kicking them off their diet, then that's not a good thing. So we have a lot of competing prop, but the full diet break, right? And this is a, I originally proposed it as 14. I know Eric has brought it down to seven and that's just a reality thing, right? If you're already preparing for a five to six month prep, and realize that six month probably includes that diet break, right? If you're putting in a two week break every six weeks, that's really extending your diet time, right? And there's that there is that study that did that. They did two weeks on, two weeks off versus what was it, fourteen weeks of straight diet? Like I said, I can't remember any of the details anymore because I'm I'm seriously getting old. And yes, the the two week on, two week off was better. They didn't see the adaptive thermogenesis changes. They did seem to lose more body fat. But they had to diet for twice as long. Now, for the general public, it's not a race. Well, it is a race because if they're losing too slowly, they get fr- people can get frustrated and lose motivation. But if you are a physique dieter who has to be stage ready on May 1st, 
the diet has to be over by May 1st, right? Like you can't get too far, like you have to factor this in when you are on a time schedule, even if you're a competitive athlete, if you're competitive, if you're big competition or powerlifter, if you got to be at a certain weight by, by the certain Saturday, you don't get to take that super long view or however long it takes is however long it takes. So you have to factor this in. But that 14, 7 to 14 day diet break does seem to reverse most of the metabolic adaptations. There's that one crazy study they did in uh, like Navy SEALs. They were on like three hours of sleep, eight hours of forced activity, 600 calories a day for weeks on end. They both, oh, they all nice. ended up at like, you may probably remember that. So it was a multi-stressor environment yeah. as part of the title. They ended up at like 4% body fat. Testosterone levels were castrate. Cortisol was like 30% over normal. IGF-1 was down. Thyroid was down. Like everything was like, they were like, that's contest dieting without drugs. But seven days at enough calories to support that activity reverse that completely, right? So there's kind of, is it a perfect uh, analog of contest dieting? No, but it's not that far off. And it shows that if you maintain energy balance, these, these things don't happen. So with seven days of even maintenance eating, we know that you can reverse that. Now, does that reverse the full metabolic effects? Thyroid does take longer to have its full effect, right? That's why I did 14 days. But we got to compromise between refilling glycogen, allowing for more training, giving the diet or a mental physical break, which is important. Like you said, that 52-week prep, I can't imagine. What was he doing, 100-calorie deficit the entire time? Like I can't, I can't imagine that. But even six months, that's a hell of a grind to diet. Having even a week off every six to eight weeks or however frequently it comes in, and that depends on earlier in the diet, you can take longer. Later in the diet, then you've got it overlaps like, okay, maybe you want a maintenance week every six week, but your last one would fall two weeks before your competition. Well, you're going to be eating more as you carb up into the contest, so you can't put in a week and lose a week of last-minute dieting. So you've got all these scheduling things that come into play. So yeah, if you're doing, you know, if you're only, if you if you know that you can get away with a 16-week straight prep, you may not need any of this. But for a lot of people, and I think again, women more so than men, because body fat loss can be really unpredictable and it's always slower than you want it to be. You have to start earlier address some of the metabolic, especially if you don't want to get menstrual cycle dysfunction, address that stuff as well, but you have to then factor all this into when you start your diet. So, and I taught, and I did, I showed how to do all this math in, in the women's book because I'm obsessive psychotic, but, but yeah, these are all these, but again, if that week then throws you off your diet and you regain a pound of body fat, well, it may have done more harm than good. But that's an individual thing, and that's an unfortunate thing you learn often from hard experience. Yeah, experience is huge. And speaking of experience, um, I also want to touch on the concept of maintenance. And Mike is uh, kind of the more well-known figure of this. And the, the other guy who works with me at the gym I work, he is a natural competitive bodybuilder, and uh -huh. he's also kind of big on this. And um, Mike basically says, you know, just take 16 weeks of dieting and then take a 16-week maintenance phase basically to get your body uh, kind of used to this new whatever settling, setting point, or set point, whatever. Okay, let's hang on. Just, just so I'm clear, we're not talking about physique competitors. We're talking about like general dieting, right? A physique competitor is not going to diet for 16 weeks to 5% and stay there. So that's not what we're talking about, is it? Sure. Okay, sure. I'm just making... But even if, let's say, even if, let's say, someone has... I don't know, 24 weeks of, of fat loss to do. And let's say you want to spread that out over, um, you do say six weeks and then you do the two weeks maintenance uh -huh. and repeat that three times. Yeah. Mike might say just do 16 on, then do whatever, 10 maintenance. And I don't know, I, I probably wasn't doesn't come out quite evenly. But anyway, he's, I think he refers mainly to people who have more body fat to lose. Sure. But this body of mine, he... Um, and sort of I was influencing him because, you know, he used to do the shorter preps yeah. and I kind of bugged him. But, you know, I, I showed pictures of these guys, Cliff Wilson's clients and stuff who do like 20-something, 30-week preps. And he started doing basically at one point he was up until, I don't know, 20%. And then he got down to like 12 and then he maintained. Right. And he got down to like 8 and then um, he took a couple of weeks, went back up to like 10 mm -hmm. and then got 
uh, do did another push, and now he says that he'll just maintain at around ten to twelve because that's where he feels he feels great. He feels that his hormones are functioning well and he's strong and whatnot. But what I find really interesting is that um, like his calorie and he's he's obsessive and meticulous with his calorie counting. Like mm-hmm. he's I don't know eighty five kilos, like probably ten. 10 11 percent because his abs are like visible like and he says he's like four thousand calories at least or maybe even above like i, I calculated even on his fat loss like he said he didn't come under 2800 and he competes at 79 kilos so like whatever was that 170 something pounds yeah so he's not he's not that big of a guy i mean eric is eric Hams is on his 80 something kilos and i've seen his macros he was like 2200 calories mm-hmm. or maybe even lower on average so i don't know maybe he's just a genetic anomaly when it comes to this kind of stuff it could be you know so i math that out so like 2600 calories at 85 kilos is about 14 calories per pound and that's certainly at the high end right 10 to 12 is kind of the standard number that uh, 10 to 12 calories per pound which is Oh, 22 to 26 calories per kilo. It's somewhere in that range. Um, I'm American, so cut me a little slack on this. Um, you know, however, even, you know, and that was based on an average maintenance of like 14 to 16 calories per pound, which is at 30 to 30 something ish. But that was also kind of assuming, all right, you're doing one hour, maybe 90 minutes of training. And that plays a big role, right? If you've got someone that is doing, you know, a tremendous amount of training, 14 to 16 calories may be low. I mean, it's not unheard of, usually for like endurance competitive athletes, like you'll see 18 to 20 calorie per pound maintenance, which is, you know, in the range of 40 to 45 cals per kg. The, the highest I think I've ever seen, and this is like Tour de France level, it's mm. like 25, cal- it's like 55 calories per kilo, but they're burning 8,000 calories in a, you know, in a six hour stage, right? Like this is, this is the, the inhuman extremes that is only sustainable for, for a short period of time. As an interesting random tidbit, and I don't think this has ever been studied and it would be interesting to see. This was years ago. Somebody asked Dan Duchesne, who's an old was an old guru who's unfortunately passed away, you know, why these big bodybuilders could supposedly eat so many more calories above normal. And his answer was that, oh, when you're leaner, you're probably radiating more heat out and, and losing, not losing calories, you know what I mean, but like because like you're not having, you don't have that body fat layer that may be causing, you know, I don't know if that's true. I think he was dealing mainly with drug using bodybuilders and you got a lot going on there. Um, I think you also get a lot of lying about calorie intake. And I'm not saying you're the guy you know is doing that. Do not mishear me. I think they're out there. I think they're doing, you know, I don't know what his training load is. But if you're doing, you know, two hours of hard training a day, also neat. And we're going to, I think maybe this shifts us into the energy expenditure topic. I think there's a good seg into that. The neat component is staggering, right? I, 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 you know, a lot of people know, like I, I train uh, Sumi Singh as a power lifter, right? And she eats like 22 calories per pound. She's 140, I mean, she's 114 pounds, but she eats in, you know, in the mid to high 2000s, which seems really high, but she has done step counts. She's doing 20 to 30,000 steps a day, right? It's not her weight room workouts. It's the things, the other 10 hours a day that she's running around like chick with her head cut off. And that is really the underappreciated variable here. And I think that probably brings us into the next topic. All right. So that was episode 30 of the Master Engineer podcast with Lai McDonald. I hope you enjoyed it. And I really hope you're looking forward to part two of the conversation. So as usual, I will um, end the episode with some of my own takeaways and the first one is going to be something that we mentioned multiple times in that there is the old uh, adage or the old cliche if you wish that you can just be doing the same things over and over and expect a different outcome so in the same vein you cannot eat the same diet that you have been eating previously and expect to get to a different outcome from it so 
in the case of let's say someone who is overweight or obese they will have to change their diets uh, significantly in order to overcome that state and um, get to a healthier spot so with that for those people including stuff like um, diet breaks or refeeds is completely pointless and most likely also including treats or trying to fit things into their macros quote-unquote is probably going to be unproductive as well so in that case most likely what we need to work on is establishing new habits and recalibrating i guess their taste palettes basically the second takeaway is when it comes to a predetermined fat loss phase so let's say you just want to tidy up things a bit you want to look better for summer or whatever the case is in that situation i do not really see the value of refeeds and diet breaks because you don't need them and in that case i would much rather see them just you know get their shit together and die straight for 10 to 12 or 16 weeks however long it needs to be and get over with and um, you know just maintain after then the third takeaway is in the context of someone who has a significant amount of weight to lose and in that situation once again i do not really see the value of refeeds because they are already high in body fat they're already high in energy stores they have plenty of glycogen <laughs> to fuel their training and all that so i guess another takeaway could be that i do not really see the value of refeeds with the possible exception of contest prep diets but i do not like to talk about those because they are not my area of quote expertise i haven't done one myself i do not work with contest prep clients so i just put that out there that contest prep might be the exception where refeeds can be beneficial but aside from that i think complete diet breaks are far superior so those were my top takeaways from this week's episode the second part of the conversation with lyle will come out most likely two weeks from now because i have another awesome episode planned for next week to see what that is stick around and until then have an awesome week and uh, go crush whatever goals you set out for yourself